Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Joe Barrett. Nighttime in the city. It's an enticing, beguiling, and sometimes frightening place. A liminal, artificial world between true night and the daytime in which most of us spend the majority of our living and working, our waking time. It's more often than not the case that we experience this world on foot, which is something that has been extensively romanticised, from Baudelaire and the image of the flaneur, or drifting urban explorer, to pop music written about walking home from nightclubs. Matthew Beaumont is a senior lecturer in English at UCL and co-director of the Urban Laboratory. He's in the process of writing a book on night walking, which is a synthesis of his interest in cities and walking, both personal and professional, and a belief that the night is a marginalised area of academic investigation. I met Matthew for Pod Academy and was joined by Gabriel Stebbing. The very concept of a populated nocturnal realm is reliant on one invention that I think we all probably take for granted. Street lighting didn't, public street lighting didn't come in until the 1680s, I think, in London. Uh, London was slightly later than most other European cities in this respect. Paris was the first. So up until the late 17th century, there was really very little light at night, except in the early evening when people, householders, were obliged to hang candles in lanterns uh, outside their homes or shops. But they were extinguished, I think, probably pretty soon after the curfew. So the city was only illuminated insofar as it was moonlit. And if one were to leave one's house or accommodation, go out into the city in the middle of the night, say between the two phases of sleep that seem to have defined sleep in, in, in the period up until the emergence of what we now call nightlife, that is, let's say, between 12 and 2 in the morning, between the first phase, or the dead time of night, as it was sometimes called, and the second phase of sleep before, before the dawn, one would be plunged into darkness. I think it would be deeply disorienting by modern standards. Obviously, at the time, people were more used to darkness. Interiors were far darker, and bodies were no doubt much more much better adjusted to darkness than we are today. I mean, we're so used to electric lighting. It's so much part of our physiology, electric lighting, and it's so defined our the patterns of our life and, and, and labour. It can be quite hard to imagine, I think, what a body that's adjusted to a much more tenebrous, dark light would be like. But one might step out into the street... I think, and have to walk immensely slowly at night. Uh, no doubt in the day, people in the medieval and early modern periods, as today, would have been living in cities, would have been extremely used to those rapid negotiations with space that one makes the entire time. Traffic would have been different, it would have been carts and horses, obviously, and all that kind of thing, uh, not cars. But the basic rhythms, I think, would have not been too dissimilar I mean, slower, but not, not too dissimilar. And I'm sure that city dwellers then, as now, would have had a, a kind of complicated, almost computer program 
in their heads, which enabled them to uh, to shift about and to uh, and and to move in such a way as to retain their private space, avoid collision, all those kinds of things, which which we too do, and which would have been extremely sensitive to social hierarchies, for example, to sense of danger, either physical or social, whatever it might be. At night, though, the city would have been almost completely empty. The computer program in the head would have had to operate in quite different ways, and I think it would have involved, as I say, moving incredibly slowly in order to avoid, in the as likely as not almost pitch darkness, colliding with objects, possibly with people concealed in the darkness. One would have also had to be extremely surreptitious at night throughout the medieval and, and, and early modern periods because of the danger of being apprehended by the night watchman who uh, could incriminate you on the spot as a night walker and put you away till the morning and then you'd be brought before the court and quite possibly uh, incarcerated. So there were plenty of, of dangers at night. I mean, these are dangers that go back to the ancient city, actually. So Juvenal, for example, writes about the dangers of walking around the city at night and how people chucking out pots full of piss or throwing out broken crockery at night, uh, no doubt because you're not really meant to do it, uh, present this real danger in, you know, moving about at night consequently requires a real alertness. I think one would, would have to move extremely carefully, not least because of the dangers of all these hidden spaces in the city. You know, one mustn't think about streets in any linear sense, I suppose, at all. I mean, it's unrealistic to think streets in a linear sense in almost any context, even in, in a city designed like a grid, because there are all sorts of deviations of one kind or another. Certainly in the medieval city, in the early modern city, the streets would have been extremely inconsistent, you know, sort of jerry-built, as it were, in lots of ways, with the exception of large, wide, relatively wide-open public spaces like Cheapside, say, um, where processions, royal processions took place and where there was a massive market. So the, the street concealed all sorts of folds in, in space, which would have been difficult, I think, to negotiate in the dark with very little light, in particular bulks, which are, are the sort of shop fronts where people laid out in the day their, their goods and at night they provided space to sleep if you were homeless or a vagrant. Uh, cellars, which I think were not very clearly marked off probably from the street and therefore represented a real danger. You could easily kind of fall into some underground cavity beneath a, uh, beneath a house, and which also provided space for the homeless of the city and there were many, many of them to... Uh, to conceal themselves and to snatch a few hours of sleep. Surfaces of the road, no doubt one would be even more aware of this at night than in the day, were extremely uneven. There was an enormous amount of mud, which, of course, froze over in the winter. There were rank smells, no doubt, not least because of the market uh, in the day and the, and the stuff that got left over from the market. So all those created a, a really difficult space to negotiate, I think, and... Night walking, walking at night in the medieval and the early modern city was largely not a leisure activity, a recognised leisure activity. It was done out of necessity. It was done by vagrants and migrants who were, who were homeless and who were therefore innately, automatically 
criminalised and susceptible to being picked up by the night watchman unless they could afford to pay a bribe. Almost by definition, they couldn't afford to pay a bribe. It's not really until the 18th century that night walking becomes a bohemian or a proto-bohemian activity, a way of experiencing the city at night in, in new, exciting, dangerous ways of slumming the city. You talked about the advent of street lighting mm. at around 1680, then use the word nightlife. It's almost like a kind of an artificial dawn that happens with street lighting. I mean, can we talk a little bit about that transition time, that sort of that early period of street lighting and the night kind of opening up to people? Before there's public street lighting at night in European cities, metropolises, light is developed at night, a sort of technology, primitive technology of light at night is developed in the courts, I think, in, in the royal courts, particularly in the form of uh, masks, plays, dramas, spectacles of one kind or another. So that was where, before public street lighting was introduced by civic authorities, a lighting technology was developed. And then it sort of gets transferred, I think, to the public domain in, in the 1680s and, and, and after. And it's largely there in the commercial centres that it, that it starts. So it's particularly associated with shops, actually. Um, in London, that means both the city of London, but perhaps even more so the, the West End, the the commercial district, the, the district of consumption increasingly, which is London as it spreads westwards between the city and Westminster, where the, the court was. Some of the earliest descriptions of public street lighting and of nightlife, if we can call it that, in the period, in the late 17th century, are about all about shops. They're all about shops on Oxford Street, visitors in particular from abroad who come and are absolutely dazzled by the lights in Oxford Street. I mean, it has a, has a, you know, still a quite a contemporary ring about it actually, and it sounds far more spectacular than the rather tawdry <laughs> Christmas lights on Oxford, Oxford Street today. Foreign visitors of one kind or another were amazed at the light. Uh, and also excited, clearly, by the opportunities, the retail opportunities <laughs> that this lighting presented. Uh, it meant that they could not just shop in the evening in this really quite sociable context where lots of affluent people in carriages and on foot ambled about, but also window shop. It was very much about window shopping. So... So the emergence of nightlife in London certainly is, is bound up not just with public lighting but with, with a culture of window shopping and, and the emergence, uh, as that implies, of a, of a layer of... a social layer, a layer of people, a social class for, which, for, whom, social, for whom consumption uh, is important, for whom shopping becomes a leisure activity. So right from the beginning it's seen as a different culture to daytime culture rather than just an extension of, of the daytime? It's a really good question. I think it was probably seen as an extension of the day in theory. Uh, historians have written about the colonisation of, of the night by light, which implies that it's an extension of the day. But actually, as your question implied, 
I think in many ways the qualitative differences between an illuminated night and the day very, very quickly emerged. And there w it was felt that this was a, a completely different culture. Some third term between day and, and the old medieval night, the really dark night, as it were. Of course, you know, given the uneven social geography of places like London and Paris, they were pretty limited, these areas where there were public illumination at night. All sorts of districts... You know, no doubt the vast majority of, of London as it expanded and grew and the suburbs were built out remained plunged in darkness um, and in fact continued to be very dark until at least the 19th century and the introduction of gaslight and then of course electricity. Public illumination at night was, was the privilege of the commercial centres and, and, and of the rich really and poor people to the extent that they benefited from it at all did so because they were parasitic not to put it too neutrally, on those consuming classes, on, on, on the rich. But when they returned home you know, from their labour or from you know, trying to pickpocket or whatever it might be, they returned to slum conditions in which there was no lighting at all. Which, you know, and there was, no, there was no difference really between a medieval and, a, and an enlightenment poor district at night, I suspect. So was there this like, idea of this being a time which you can inhabit and be active in and then being taken away to a place where there is no light does the kind of culture of awareness remain and that sort of maybe creates a sort of dangerous dark world in a different way than existed before i think it probably did actually i think that the more the city was colonized by light the more the contrast with those areas that remained unenlightened uh, in, in the double sense of you know, not lit but also uncivilised, as it were, the more, the more um, acute that, that, that contrast became. Obviously it became that there were these no-go areas at night. No doubt there'd always been no-go areas, but probably became particularly obvious. The early romantic night walkers they're aware of this contradiction of this growing, these new types of night and these, the possibilities of cutting across, I presume. I think the story, the romantic story of, of reappropriating the night, the bohemian story, begins really in, just before the romantic period proper is usually thought to begin, begins earlier in the 18th century and the, and the key figures as far as I'm concerned are Samuel Johnson and Richard Savage. Samuel Johnson, of course, we think of as this monumental man of English letters. As a young man, he was impoverished, penniless, had walked from from you know, area around Birmingham to London in search of piecemeal literary work in order to make a, a literary career for himself. He had no money. He was married, didn't have a very satisfactory relationship with his wife, and he fell in with this character, Richard Savage, who was an older poet who was a... a a kind of roué, a dissolute pseudo-aristocrat who had a relatively good reputation as a poet, but a, a poor reputation as a as a man in that he was regarded as utterly unreliable, uh, if not dangerous. He was so ragged and uh, outrageous. And the two of them fell in with one another and formed this very unlikely friendship. And one of the ways, it seems, in which they related to one another was by walking about 
London at night. The two of them would rail against the government. So it was a almost explicitly, I think, in their case, a political gesture. They didn't, in fact, walk in the poorer areas much, although the story has it that they slept, sometimes homeless, in areas where the poor and the vagrant were forced to sleep. They used to go to the glass houses, according to legend. In other words, the places where bottles were made, uh, which at night remained warm, because if the factory was allowed to cool down, then you know, stop the whole production process. So there were walls and cavities in the glass factories, which were dotted in various places around London, which remained warm at night and which emanated this this heat and they, Richard Savage and Samuel Johnson, according to legend, used to sometimes end up sleeping there for the warmth. But they'd walk around at night in Westminster on the whole precisely because, or, or areas like St James's Square near the court, precisely because they were sticking two fingers up at the government and the court. They were walking in enemy territory if you like. They would march around the place complaining about about the government, complaining about its imperial ventures, complaining about class society. And I think they're crucial. It's not that other people didn't do it. There were various other poets in the early 18th century who, partly by choice but also partly by necessity, were forced, for example, to sleep on benches in St James's Park at night. But it was those two, Savage and Johnson, I think, that really defined walking at night as a countercultural experience, if I can put it like that, as one uh, that involved a refusal of the commerce of the city in the day, that involved a political rejection of the whole culture of contemporary society. You've been listening to Pod Academy. If your interest was sparked, keep a lookout for Matthew's book, coming out on Verso Books. There are many more podcasts on academic research on the website, podacademy.org.